Good morning. It is great to see everyone. Um, if you have your Bible, open up to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 5, as we uh, are finishing up our series on what does the Bible say about, and then we've had you ask a questions, and we gathered your questions and took the ones that you that most of you asked about, and so we've we've dealt with some fun issues. You know, we dealt with um, the you know the trustworthiness of the Bible. We dealt with um, alcoholism. What does the Bible say about alcohol? We've you dealt with baptism and just a lot of things. It's been it's been a lot of fun. We're ending up today, and this was hard because this is the last one, and we had still several, you know, groupings of questions that were asked, and, and so uh, we're, we're going with the one today um, on what does the Bible say about demons? We had a lot of people ask uh, questions about, are demons real? Is that, was that just kind of just for something back then, or does that still happen today, or where do they come from? All, you know, several groupings of questions about the demonic. And so we're going we're gonna to open this up and we're going to look at it because the Bible actually says quite a bit. Um, but it says in a way where we as believers, first let me start with this, right? You, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not have anything to be afraid of. Amen? Nothing to fear, right? Nothing to fear. If you're not a follower of Jesus, be very afraid, <laughs> right? Because there is an evil agenda against you. And without Christ, you're in you're, you're impotent. You don't have the power to overcome it. So looking at all that, we're going to look at this uh, historical account out of the Gospel of Mark. And we're not doing a deep dive just into this one particular narrative. But we're using this as kind of a springboard into a conversation about you know, the, the, the forces of evil as a whole. So um, let's all stand. We're going to read here chapter, chapter 5, um, this, this really interesting account that Jesus has with uh, uh, this person referred to as a demoniac. And so let's just read this together. Chapter five, verse one. Well, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. A great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And so they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And we still marvel to this day. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your incredible power. And driven by your love for us, that power overcomes us. And and so, God, if we're your followers, we're protected by your power. So, Jesus, thank you. I just pray, God, as we just unpack not only this historical text, but just kind of do a panorama of what your word says about the forces of evil, that God not only would be educated in our minds, but God would be become alert and sober in how we live, and um, God, just very aware of the spiritual warfare that goes on daily, uh, in which we're a part of, whether we acknowledge it or not. And God, on the back end of all this, I just pray you would encourage us to live more passionately for you. Lord, as we come to the end of the day's message, we're looking at the passage, we say, draw near to you, because you will draw near to us. And Lord, that's the answer. And so God, I just pray that you help us to walk uh, and live our life um, soberly, circumspectively, aware of the evil, and aware of the evil agendas that go on around us, so that we can live correctly in your way to make a big influence. So God, we give this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, go ahead and have a seat. Well, if you have your notes, go ahead and pull those out and um, you should either have a hard copy or uh, you can also look on your, the church app, the church center app and uh, the sermon notes are there. You can take blank or fill in the blanks and take extra notes and email it to yourself later if you're of the more digital persuasion. When it comes to dealing with the issue of demons, you know, it's kind of like a lot of other things. You know, we, we, uh, we can tend to run off a ditch on either side, right? And, and so what happens a lot of times is you know, we, we, like when it comes to the issue of, you know, speaking in tongues or the, the acts of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, we can go too far and become, you know, just ultra Pentecostal or go too far the other way and hardly even ever mention the Holy Spirit, right? And we, we tend to do that with things. You go from one extreme to another. And we can be this way when it comes to demons as well. We can, you find those people that are just obsessed with you know what they call spiritual warfare and just always focusing on demons and always trying to cast them out of everything and just all demons are behind every corner kind of a thing. You, you have that extreme. And then over here on the other extreme, you have those that may not even believe that demons are still operating today and never even think about the forces of evil and the, the, the wiles or schemes of Satan. And so we, we tend to go from ditch to ditch. Everybody know what I mean, right? On a, we do that on a lot of things, right? But here, try to keep it in the road, and so a really neat quote to kind of start us off today from C.S. Lewis, a great Christian author in the, in the early to mid-1900s. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So those are the two sides of the ditch. So let's just kind of dive right in. We, so here in our, in our historical account, Jesus has gone across the Sea of Galilee. He's, in, he's kind of on the eastern side now, kind of Gentile land. And uh, he comes into the, off the boat, and there's immediately, meet, he meets this guy that's filled with an unclean spirit, which refers to a demon. So let's just ask the question, so what is 
a demon. What is one of these critters, right? And so the Greek word here is daimonion. That's what the word is translated, and it's usually translated demon. And if we just simply define it, it's an angel who rebelled against God, becoming a spirit being who is unclean and immoral in nature and activities. That's what a demon is, right? So biblically, they are very real. So if you came in today with this thought, demons are mythological, no, demons are very real. From We see Satan in Genesis chapter three, all the way through to the end of Revelation there's teaching, there's scriptures, and we're going to look at a lot of them today about Satan and the demons and their goals and their work and their aims, all this sort of thing. So they're, they're very real. Now, when demons were created or how they came to be demons, uh, their organizational structure, all this, is, it's not given a lot of significant attention in scripture because the focus throughout the Bible is on God and his work in Christ instead of the work of the demons against Christ, right? Um, but there is some. So we're gonna look at these. Some other terms we see for demons. Uh, we see here the unclean spirit. That's another term. Unclean had to do, old, it's an Old Testament word, and it meant they were never worthy to come before the presence of God. They were never in a position they could approach God for worship, right? That's what unclean meant in the Old Testament, so old people in the Old Testament could become unclean through various things. Well, they had to process, we kind of talked about this last week with baptism, there was a process that people had to go through to become clean again in order to go into the tabernacle or go into the temple and worship God. For a demon, that is never a possibility. They are permanently unclean. We see this term used a lot. See it here, we see it in Mark chapter one, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So we, we see that term. We also see the term an evil spirit, which speaks to the demon's nature. Nature is evil, and evil is defined as void of good, right? It's, it's, the, it's not only the opposite of good, it's the absence of good, right? So evil is an absence marker, like darkness is the absence of light. Well, evil is the absence of good. And so an evil spirit, we see this in verses like Acts 19. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, right? So we see this evil spirit. Spirit. We also see the word devils. Devils, kind of a more older term. Some of you, like your, your older, like King James version, we use the word devils some. We see C.S. Lewis in his writing use the word devils instead of demons. Um, we see that, but even Jesus uses this term when talking about, this is interesting, some of you might have never read this first, talking about Judas Iscariot, he says this, did I not choose you the 12, talking to the apostles, yet one of you is a what? Devil, yeah, it's interesting. So it goes to the question, which we're not gonna go down this rabbit hole, but was Judas Iscariot ever saved? Well, according to this, he was a devil. Probably not, right? But that's a whole nother conversation. And then we also see fallen angels. We see this concept taught to us in scripture about these demonic beings. Uh, Revelation 12 kind of records this vision that the apostle John has about a war breaking out in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael's like the archangel, right? And they were fighting against the dragon and its angels, meaning fallen angels. The dragon here is Satan, right? And the angels that were with Satan were the, just what we call the fallen angels. All right, so we see these different terms. All refers to the same Creatures, the demonic. So what do they do? What do demons do? Well, first, their goal 
is to oppose God and rob him of his glory. So just understand, the demon's enemy is God. Jesus is the enemy's, I mean, Jesus is the enemy of the demons. And therefore, if we follow Jesus, we become enemies too. But their main goal is to, is to oppose God and rob him of his glory. How do they do this? Well, we just go through the Old Testament, we see, first, by fronting as other gods, right? It's interesting. There's a lot of false gods mentioned in the Old Testament. Like, um, just, you know of a, of a name of a false god in the Old Testament, just, just yell it out. Yeah, Baal, that's a, that's a very common one. Molech, that's a very common one. Asherah, yeah. These are different false gods mentioned throughout the Old Testament, right? Well, where do they come from, right? What are these ideas and the ideologies of these false gods and these false religious systems? Where do they come from? Well, actually, the Bible tells us very clearly. Just look at some of these verses. Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. It says, they, being the people, stirred him, being God, to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to what? The demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had dreaded, had never dreaded. So here, what is Moses, what's he attributing to these false gods? He's attributing them as being what? Demons, fronting as other gods. We also see in the book of Psalm 106, verse 35, talking about the people they mixed with the nations. They learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. So idols, there's the false god, right? They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The idols and the gods behind the idols were demons. Baal was a demon. Molech was a demon, Asherah was a demon. But, well, and let's get this quote. So Wayne Groom, a, a prominent theologian today, said, it is fair to conclude that all the nations around Israel that practiced idol worship were engaging in the worship of demons. So it wasn't that they were just false gods. They were, they were no gods, but there was something behind it, right? And that something is this evil spiritual force that we know of as the demonic, demons. In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, you know, the Egyptians had all of their gods and goddesses. They were polytheistic, which means they worshiped many gods, many goddesses. And Moses, the first couple rounds of the plagues, Moses turned the you know, Nile River to blood. But do you remember what happened after that? What did, what did Pharaoh's sorcerers do? They, took, they turned water to blood too. Remember that? And remember when Moses took his staff and he threw it down and became a serpent, what did the sorcerers do? They took his staff and threw it down to be a serpent too. But then Moses' serpent ate the other serpents up, which I thought that was really cool, right? So these, the dark magic, it's real. It's demonic. Not just false gods, not just no gods, but they're demonic fronting as gods. Why? To rob God of his glory and to rob God of being worshiped by all of us whom he intended us to do. It's to worship him, right? So their aim is to rob God, to oppose God in what he's doing. But it's not just Old Testament. We see 1 Corinthians, Paul, he writes this. Says, Why do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? 
He says, no, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So it's not just an Old Testament, archaic, ancient, weird thing. This is in New Testament times. This is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which shows that demonic activity post-resurrection is still ongoing. He says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. That's why we need to be very careful, right, in even like things of the occult, you know, like, like horoscopes. And we got to be careful with that because the occult is demonic, right? Any pagan worship is demonic. Anything that draws our worship, our devotion, our faith away from God is demonic in its essence. It's demonic in its, in its foundation, right? There's a demonic scheme behind all of that. But what does God say? God says this, you shall have no other gods before me, right? No other gods before me. Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Wasn't that clear? Now we live in a culture today that tries to teach pluralism, right, where it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about what you believe. Kind of, you know, all roads lead to the same place. According to scripture, there's a theological word for that. That is baloney, right? <laughs> that is just not true according to the word of God, right? There's, and we'll get to this. In fact, let's just, let's just go ahead and get to this now. Um, of course, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the second way that, that the demonic seeks to oppose and rob God of his glory is by teaching false truth claims in order to continue to try to blind people to the gospel. So how does that work? Well, just a few verses here. We see 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, right? In their case, the God of this world, which is talking about Satan and his minions, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this shows the goal, the scheme of Satan and his enemies. And get to this a little bit later, but don't let Satan use you to do this in someone else's life. Don't let Satan use you to be a reason why someone should doubt the truthfulness of the gospel. Oh, well, gosh, I thought she was supposed to be a follower of Jesus and, and she's doing that all the time? Or man, I thought he was supposed to be a follower of Christ. He's the, he's the meanest cuss I've ever met. <laughs> Don't be that person that Satan uses you to keep someone blinded to the reality of the gospel because that's them accomplishing their goal of opposing God and robbing him of his glory. Another verse we see here, 1 Timothy 4.1. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's the enemy opposing God, robbing him of his glory. But here, God says this. Here's what God says about this truth. See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the, here's this phrase, the elemental spirit. I could have included that in the list. Elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In other words, beware. There's a lot of false teaching out there, right? A lot of false teaching out there. Even within the umbrella of loosely use this term, Christianity. There's a lot of false teaching. And we've got to be careful. It's happening all around us, right? There's just false teaching going here, false teaching going there. It'll slip in here, it slips in there. And, and the, what the purpose of this false teaching is, is to pull you away from the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture. To pull you away from glorifying God as a true worshiper of God for his glory. Pulls you away from that. So be careful. God says, see to it, no one takes you captive. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. We'll talk about this a little later, but look at what, where this battle takes place. We destroy what? Arguments, truth claims, right? We destroy false truth claims, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where the war is, right? The war is in the field of truth, the field of of arguments, worldview. What else do demons do? They also seek to destroy God's work. They seek to destroy God's work. Jesus says this in John 10. So Jesus gets the other side of the lake. See, this demoniac comes up to him. And look at what these demons had done to this guy. Here Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? They had stolen this guy's life, right? This guy, we don't know what he had done. We don't know what kind of background he was in, but he was filled with legion. He was filled with demons, you know, and, and he's hanging around the tomb. He lives in the graveyard. Is that weird? He lives in the graveyard, lives in the tomb. Other, other of the gospels talk about he's also, he, he, he never wore clothes. He was, he was nude. A nude dude, right? Weird. In the, in the graveyard. And he has this, you know, he, he, he's not himself. Because when Jesus cast the legion out, what does it say about him? He's there in his right mind. Well, that's powerful. So they had occupied and taken over kind of. That's what they do. Steal, kill, destroy. That's their aim against God's work. And by the way, you are God's work, right? Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, his creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works before time began. So they want to go against God's work. They want to rob him of his glory, oppose him, and destroy his work, which is you and me. So make no mistake, the enemy has a plan for you, and his plan is destruction. Everything about you, he wants to destroy it. He wants to destroy your joy. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your hope. You name it. He wants to destroy your children because it's all God's work in you and through you. That's his scheme. That's his plan, his goal. So we see, first of all, he wants to destroy the work of his image bearers, which is you and I. And this, this verse isn't on the screen or notes, but this is why Peter tells us 
Be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. <clears throat> Peter says it because he knows the wild of the enemy is to just destroy you, the image bearers of God. Notice what this demoniac in her story, what is he doing? So he's, he seems, everybody thinks he's crazy because he's, well, he is, he's filled with demons, right? And he lives in the tombs, but what else is he doing to himself? Cuts himself, right? Cuts himself, his arms, probably his legs, probably whatever. He just, there's self-harm that's coming to him. And the demons have taken up camp, and it's kind of interesting to study this concept of possession, right? Because the, in the Greek, the Greek language, the words used don't really get all the way to what we would call possession, to where like the demons are absolutely in control, and this guy has no control whatsoever, um, it's just that there's this strong power influencing kind of a thing. Oppression, we would call it heavy, heavy oppression would kind of be the concept here. But just some, some what we see the demons do, demonic oppression, demonization is characterized by several things throughout scripture we see. We see, first of all, the sacrifice of children. Old Testament, Molech, um, was a Babylonian deity, which we know is a demon, who demanded the sacrifices of people's children. And it even spilled over into God's people. You read in the Old Testament about Judah's king, Manasseh. And Manasseh's father was Hezekiah, who was a very godly king. He loved God, but Manasseh didn't go that way. Manasseh becomes an adult. He leads God's people away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping Molech. And Manasseh himself took his own children and threw them into the fire as a sacrifice Molech. It's kind of interesting, you know, you see, see these same demons just kind of front as different deities or different practices. Killing of innocent children has been all throughout history, and it's always been like this Molech kind of God. We see a lot of it today. You know, right now we're killing more innocent children than any time in history. Call it abortion, right? It's a, it's a heavy political issue and there's some who really believe in the, that the women should be able to choose. But anytime there's the killing of innocent children, there's always a demonic force behind it. That's the demon of Molech in the Old Testament. And they're deceptive, make good arguments, but it is what it is. Secondly, is inflicting bodily harm on oneself. You know, it's a, it's a common issue today, cutting and Know, self-harm and it's oppression and it's, there's a lot of issues wrapped up, but just know that that's a scheme of the enemy. He, the enemy wants you to hurt yourself, right? He wants you to do that. God loves you. God says, you're, you're, you bear my image. You are priceless. You're so valuable. And I love you. I died for you, right? So anytime we damage ourselves, we're damaging the image of God as well, right? It's a big deal. But no, there's, there's that demonic thought process, that, that oppression that wants to move you toward hurting yourself. And here's where this understanding possession and oppression is really, it really matters, especially for a child of God. You can never be possessed by a demon to the point where you're not in control. As my mic falls down, right? 
That cannot happen because you have the spirit of God within you, amen? And God has promised you, right? And we'll get to this here in a minute, but you always have the ability to resist, resist the devil. It can't make you, you can't ever say, well, the devil made me do it. You can't, right? You can't say that. Third, is cold prostitution is part of pagan worship. We see that all throughout, especially the Old Testament. And even in Paul's day, like in the church in Corinth, you know, Corinth was a city where in their pagan religion, the Greek mythology, they, they worshiped Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love and fertility. And so cult prostitution was a big deal there in the city of Corinth. That is demonic, right? Sex is meant to be inside of a marriage of a man and woman, to be treasured and to honor God with, right? That's, that's where God gave us that. We, we had this whole series on it back in the spring. But that's where that's supposed to be. So any perversion or distortion of that is demonic. Fourth, immoral and self-destructive practices. So we just see this here with this, this demoniac here in the, in the Gerasenes. He's bringing on self-harm. And you um, see all throughout Scripture. There's another example in Acts of an unclean spirit who came out of many who were possessed, right? Oppressed, demonized would be a good way to translate it. Crying out with a loud voice, and many who, and here it manifests in Jesus' day, it's even physical ailments, paralysis or lame. They were healed. Jesus and here the apostles healed them. So with Jesus, often disease, blindness, muteness was also a result of demonic activity. Convulsions. There's a story of this dad who had a son who's in his 20s and he would just start convulsing. And, and Jesus comes up to him and it's, it's a tragic scene, but in my twisted sense of humor, I find a little humor in this because Here's this boy, this young man, he's convulsing, and Jesus comes up, and Jesus doesn't heal him at first. He looks at that and says, you do this often? There he is just convulsing, right? Jesus strikes up a conversation with dad. Do you do this a lot? And the dad's like, well, he's been doing it ever since. He doesn't have this whole conversation, and here's the boy, you know, just convulsing away. But it's all about this dad's faith. Jesus has that intentional conversation about the man's faith. He says, well, don't you know if you believe, I'll heal him. He says, oh, Lord, help my unbelief. Jesus heals him right there on the spot. And it was demonic. There was demonic activity. So we, we see that even in Jesus' day that behind a lot of our physical issues was even some demonic intent. Now, I'm not saying that all these things are always demonic. Nope, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, mental illness is a real deal thing, right? Um, physical illness is a real deal thing. We don't need Satan to have to be behind that doing that, right? That can just happen. We live in a fallen world. Our bodies are fallen. Things just happen like that, right? But in Jesus' day, in some of these examples, sometimes there was demonic influence behind some of this. But here's what God says. That he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that great news? We don't have to fear the demonic. Because we have Jesus. So demons fight against God's work. They also seek to destroy God's work through his church, through us collectively. How does he do this? Well, he tries to do it through temptation. How many leaders have fallen to temptation? I'm, even in our own Southern Baptist Convention, it seems like the last few years, it's just it's becoming more, more common. I mean, pastors or denominational leaders, you know, it's just 
more very prominent names a lot of you have recognized and heard. You probably, if you go down to Branson much, you probably heard one of them preach a lot in Branson. He, if he's fallen to sexual sin and it's just horrific, that temptation and how it's affecting the church because Satan wants to destroy the work of the church. But God says this, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. So in other words, you are not gonna experience any temptation that the rest of us haven't experienced as well. Isn't that good news? Misery likes company, right? So, hey, nothing's new under the sun. You know, if you get tempted with an image on, the, on an app or you get tempted by a guy flirting with you at work, or that's not new. It's happened a million times, and should the Lord tarry, it's gonna happen a million times more, right? Just reality of living in this fallen world. But here's where we get to the promise. Look at this. But God is what? Oh, you gotta say it like you mean it. God is what? Faithful. Look at this. This is huge promise. This is a verse worth memorizing, right? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear or beyond your ability. Isn't that a great news? So it's like God is always with us. Well, he is. He's always with us. He's always with you, even in those, and especially in those tempting moments. When you're feeling that temptation, you're, you got the, the, the frog in your throat, the butterflies in your stomach, you're like, oh, this is a big moment. And you know this is a big moment. You know you're really tempted. Right there, the promise of God says, hey, as, as much as you feel this temptation, I'm not letting it go too far. Because I know you, I know what you can handle. And even then, look, it goes on, it doesn't stop there. With the temptation, he also, just say also, if that's not enough, he also provides the way of escape that you're able to endure it. Isn't that great news? Now, we look back, just think about this past week. How many of us fell into sin this week at some level? Put your hand up. Which shows, you know, if we fell into sin this past week, no, you did fall into sin this past week, it wasn't God's fault that you sinned. Whose fault is it? That's right. Yeah, don't point to your neighbor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because God is faithful. We are the ones who aren't faithful all the time. So, do the work of the church. Also within the church, through temptation, in addition, through dissension and division. Ooh, this happens in a lot of churches, folks. Dissension and division. I mean, the night before Jesus is crucified, this is so powerful, it's not on your screen, but John's Gospel, chapter 21, captures Jesus' prayer on that Thursday night, approaching midnight. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to be tried. He knows within 10 hours he's gonna be nailed to the cross, right? He knows this. And of all the things Jesus chooses to pray about, what does he pray for? Get to verse 21 of chapter 21. He's been praying for his disciples, but he says, Father, I pray also, not just for these, for those who will believe in me because of them. Now, who is here today that we believe in Jesus because of the work of the disciples? Us. He is praying for us. And he says, he prays this, I pray, Father, that they be one 
as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they be one in us, so as the world may believe that you sent me. He prays for our unity. And not just unity for unity's sake, but he prays for our unity around the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel, right? Prays for that. So if that's, if that's God's work, if that's God's direction, right, what do you think Satan wants to do? The opposite. He wants to sow seeds of division and dissension and disharmony. That's what he wants to do. He wants to tear us apart. Jesus wants to keep us together. Satan and the demons want to tear us apart. So dissension's a big deal. So here's what God says about his church, about how much Jesus loves us. And his little command to husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a lot of love. But he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves us. Amen? And so when we are letting Satan use us to sow seeds of discord, dissension, questions, second guessing. I mean, there's a good way to do questions. We all need to ask questions. I'm not saying don't ever question anything. Absolutely. But it's the spirit in which we do it, right? If we do it because we want truth, we want things to do right, that's one thing. But if we do it because we want to, we want to, we want our side and, and, and we, there's that side too. That's dissension, right? And so, you know, it's very hard right now. We're in three campuses and for us to go past the us and them mentality, right? Well, there's us here at Oakville and there's them over there at Windsor or Webster, right? That's a dissension type thought process. That's natural, but it can be divisive. So we are one church, right? We're one church, we're one family. And so we cannot, over, we cannot be over redundant in how we communicate that because dissension's a tricky thing. Unity takes a lot of work and intentionality. It's a miracle of God that he performs. So, that's in the church. We'll also see in Ephesians, it goes on. So he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. And then the third area that God, um, that the enemy works to destroy God's work is in the family. Satan's after our families. He really is. We first see this through perverting sex and sexuality. He wants to distort that. God gave us that, it's a beautiful gift, already mentioned this. He wants to do it through attacking marriages. Satan does not want husband and wives to get along. I don't know if you knew that, husbands and wives, huh? I know, I know most of you get along all the time, right? Everything's just great, all the time, yeah. Anybody had an argument with your spouse this last week? <laughs> I felt like I was out there by myself, you know? Well, you know, that's what Satan wants for us. Again, Satan's not making us do these things. The demons don't make us do these things. We do these ourselves. But he sure likes to throw fuel on the fire. Yeah, attacking marriages and attacking our children. Folks, it's a, this is a big deal right now. The next generations are under attack with worldview, false truth claims, ideologies, it's just more like more intensely than in the history of our country anyway. 
And uh, that's why we gotta be praying for our kids. We gotta be pouring into our kids. Next Gen Ministries here is so important. But if you're a mom or dad or grandparent, listen, you can't just rely on the church because the church only has your kids and teenagers a couple of hours a week, right? The world, whether it's school or friends or playing sports with other people that aren't believers, I mean, they've got them a lot more time than the church does. So at home is so critical. When you got your kids dozens of hours a week, we got them here for like two. So if you're just relying on the church to do it all, it's not gonna happen. We gotta have you at home. Just, just open the Bible, just ask questions. You don't have to have this master plan. You don't have to be great at it, right? It's just a mom or a dad opening up, hey, let's just read this, this verse today and just talk about it. Hey, let's just pray before we, we have a meal. Let's pray before we go to bed. You know, let's, let me pray for you to, to be strong in your faith. You know, just, just simple things like that. It's what you gotta do. Their kids are under attack, big time. And, you know, we know that Christ wins, ultimately, amen. Boy, it sure doesn't look like though he's winning in our nation, does it? Not in our culture today. But here's what God says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Look at your kids lately and think of, think of your kids or grandkids that way. My kids are this is a heritage from God, right? He goes on and he says, blessed is the man or woman who fills his quiver with them, right? Some of y'all are working hard at that. You know, Keen's got number five on the way. It's exciting, right? And that's good. But kids are a blessing. Our culture kind of tends sometimes to make us look at kids as kind of a, a distraction or a hindrance or rob me of a better life kind of a thing. Kids are a blessing, and that's, that's the biblical worldview of children is that they're a blessing, right? And so, you know, this past Wednesday, we had um, Canaan together. And of course, for Canaan together, we don't have nursery and all that. Everybody just brings all the kids in. This is great. So you hear kids uh, crying or, you know, we're seeing them, the kids dancing over here. I think that is awesome. Amen? That is an awesome, beautiful thing. Those kids are a blessing. You never know. The, the kid back there crying might be the next Billy Graham. You just never know, right? never know. Such a blessing. The blessed is one whose quiver is full. That's what God says about our kids. Well, lastly, we're going to wrap things up. How are demons defeated? How do, we, how do we fight them, right? How do we combat them? First is only through Jesus and his gospel, right? Um, we don't have the power in and of ourselves to fight them. Only Jesus does, but Jesus has already disarmed them. We see this in Colossians chapter 2. It says, in you, you were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcised of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and don't miss this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now, that's not just talking about the Romans or the Jewish leaders. That's also talking to the evil schemes behind them, right? Which is Satan and his minions. By what? Triumphing over them. They're defeated. They are defeated already. And so that's, that's such good news. Jesus and his gospel wins. And we see when the demoniac legion, when they see Jesus, what's the first thing they do? They run to him. 
and they fall at his feet. They, they feel him, right? So he, he runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. Don't you know the demons know exactly who Jesus is? And don't you know that they are very keenly aware of their defeat all the time? They appeal to Jesus. And this is where it gets really interesting. They appeal to Jesus. They have to ask permission to do things. They know that even though Jesus is their enemy, they're completely at his mercy. That is so fascinating. Because you see that God is sovereign over Satan and demons. And this is really important for a worldview. We don't live in a dualistic situation. It's not the yin and the yang. It's not good and evil as equal and opposite forces. No, no, no. God is all powerful. Amen. Satan is not. God is all powerful. The demons are not. God has free reign. The enemy does not. That's huge and great news. So how do we fight? Secondly, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, God in us, right? We see Paul saying in Philippians chapter two, for it is God who works in you both to will, that's the want to, and to do or to work for his good pleasure. So God works in us, overpowering our sinful desires, overpowering the temptations that we face. And then third, we defeat the demons through our weapons of warfare. Three primary weapons. We have the word, the word of God, we see Jesus, Matthew 4, I'm moving fast, we're out of time, but Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan three times. All three times, how does Jesus respond? Thus it is written, that's right, the power of the word of God. This is why we start teaching scripture memory to our kids in Puggles, you know, at Awana, really little. Hide your word in my heart. Once King David was asked this in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? And David answers, I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? The internalizing of the word of God. There's power in the word. Hebrews chapter four says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's not just, you're not just reading like a textbook. This isn't like a, a history book. It does have history, but it's living, active. When we and I open the word, we read the word, when we quote the word, we meditate on the word, we are interacting with the God of the universe, right? It is, it's living. It's not just some kind of cognitive learning experience. It's so much more than that. It's relationship, right? Empowers us through the spirit. Secondly, it's through prayer. Engage in warfare through prayer. The night before Jesus is crucified, he, he goes to battle on his knees. He prays. And he, you see his struggle when he's contemplating what he's about to face. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Cup represents his suffering. But then in the middle of the warfare, he, in his battle, he says, but yet not my will, yours be done. And he wins through submission, right? Just all that happening through prayer. We pray for one another. Old Testament, interesting story in Daniel. Daniel's praying, right? He's praying for his people. He's praying for his, you know, all this, they're all in the exile. It's just terrible time. And Weeks later, Gabriel shows up and says, I wanted to answer your prayer weeks earlier, but I was being hindered by the prince of Persia. What was going on? He was engaged in spiritual battle, right? But Daniel's prayer moved the angels and moved Gabriel. And, and so Gabriel came to respond to Daniel's prayer. Prayer is powerful, folks. And it's one of the fewest things we do. Prayer is so powerful. 
It's our weapon of warfare. And third, fellowship and accountability. All the each other's, the one another is how we fight, right? Have you ever got, anybody ever get picked on at school? Get your hand up high, come on. Own it. Yeah, me too, right? So let me ask you this. When you, if you had a, if you knew you were going out to the playground and there's a bully, you could do one of two things. You could just not go out to the playground and try to find an excuse to have to stay in the classroom, you know, get in trouble, whatever. You'd do anything to get away from the bully. Or you could keep around other people, right? Because there's kind of safety in numbers when it comes to bullies, right? Yep, there is, trust me. Well, that's exactly what Scripture tells us. Back up to that First Peter 5, you know, the Satan is seeking to devour his prey like a roaring lion. He's looking for the stragglers. He's looking for those who are removed from the pack. When we're together, when you are regularly here in church, when you're regularly in small group where people are getting to know you and you're opening up and sharing about who you are, there's... Even though sometimes those relationships seem scary, they're safe because that protects you against the enemy. See, one of Satan's greatest tools and weapons he uses against us is secrecy, is isolation, is I don't want anybody to know. Those men that they know, right? Well, Satan does know. And Satan's gonna use that to keep you alone and you. You've watched nature channels. You know what happens when lions hunt a herd of wildebeest. There's the one who's alone. That's the one that the lions pounce on. When you're alone and isolated, you're wide open. But if you're in fellowship and accountability, there's safety there. So just want to end with this. This is just powerful. Let's just think through spiritual warfare real fast. And I got three, I'm gonna do three more minutes. Implications of a sovereign God. So God is sovereign. We believe that wholeheartedly. So it means even over spiritual warfare, God is in control, right? Just say that with me. God is in control. That's right. So here's what that means. If God is in control, then what does this mean about the warfare that we go through? First, it means that God has a greater purpose in spiritual warfare, Right? We see Romans chapter eight, you know, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. In that promise, we know that even the bad things that happen, God is still in control and he has promised us to leverage those for the good of making us more like Jesus, right? So God has a greater purpose in warfare. It's not random. It's not sporadic. It's not just at the the whims of the enemy. It's not like the demons are looking around saying, well, Hey, let's have some fun with Daniel today. You know, it's not, it doesn't work like that. We see this with Job, right? In the book of Job, if you've ever read Job, first chapters one and two, Satan goes and has to get permission to attack Job. But God puts barriers, puts limits on what Satan can do to Job. God is in control. Satan's not. And so that's pretty powerful. Secondly, a second implication of spiritual warfare <coughs> is that the focus is on God in the midst of the attack. So when you're feeling like you're under spiritual attack, the focus is gonna be on God, not on the demon, not on Satan, not on the enemy, but focus on God. And we'll look at some verses here in a minute to look at that. Third, whoops, hold on, back there. Third, the confidence for victory depends on God, not me and my performance. This is a little bit different than a lot of teaching out there about warfare, right? A lot of people teaching warfare, well, if you're under attack and you still, you still sin or fail, then you, you just didn't have enough faith. It's your fault, right? 
And though there's some truth, if we don't exercise enough faith, or we don't, I mean, we're accountable when we disobey God, but the confidence of victory is not on you. It's, it's your confidence in the Lord who's in you. Confidence is in God. God to get the victory. Fourth, the standard of evaluating success depends on whether or not God accomplishes his purpose through your life, not whether or not you remove the demon, so to speak. But let's just say if God wasn't sovereign, of an unsovereign, I don't know if unsovereign is even a word. I don't know, but you know what I mean. If God is not sovereign, first, <clears throat> there would be no purpose in spiritual warfare, only random attacks. You're just at the whims of the devil, right? Anytime. Secondly, the focus would have to be on Satan's evil plots instead of God's purposes. You gotta focus on, okay, well, for me to beat Satan, I gotta understand what he's doing. No, just, just focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. And then the confident victory would depend on me and my performance instead of on God. And then lastly, standard of evaluating success would depend on whether we were able to remove Satan or not. I'm gonna kind of caution you though, as you get ready to close. Um, the demonic's real, very real. Seems more obscured in our culture here because we're so educated, right? But it's real. Same time, we're sinners. And James says, you know, that we fall to temptation and we're taken away by our own desires. We're accountable. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you. Satan can't make you do a thing. We're responsible agents. I mean, we fail a lot. Even with the Holy Spirit in us, we fail a lot. You're not a believer. You don't have the Holy Spirit. So you're completely open to attack and corruption and being misled. But even as followers of Jesus, it's still hard. You know, Jesus said, narrow is the way and difficult the path that leads to life and very few find it. But all of this leads us to one conclusion. Folks, we need Jesus. We need Jesus in our life. We need Jesus to be close. You know, 1 Peter 5, we went back up and read it, says, it ends with saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You're under spiritual attack. I mean, yeah, we can pray against the enemy, but the best thing to do is draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? Give that command three times, flee. Resist and he will flee. Resist him. All you know where you're, your touch points are. All of you know where your weaknesses are. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's in your mind right now. Lust or coveting or greed or envy or complaining, whatever, whatever your device is, your weakness is, you know where Satan attacks you. I'm gonna encourage you this morning just to pray. Just pray for God's strength. Draw near to him in that regard. Trust him more in that regard. Have you memorized scripture about that issue? If not, commit to that. Take it seriously. Because all Satan needs is a little foothold to wreak havoc in your life, right? But 2 Corinthians 10 promises that the weapons we have are divinely powerful for the destruction 
of those enemies' strongholds in our life. Destroy them through the weapons of the word, of prayer, and each other. So we have a time of commitment. I ask all of you to stand. We're gonna go, Lord, in prayer. If you've been trying to fight some of these on your own, say, Lord, I can't, I need you. First Peter 5, again says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast them on him. Say, Jesus, I need you. Help me. I'm gonna ask our prayer counselors to come up. This is a great day to pray with prayer counselors. Everything's confidential. Men with men, women with women. Um, let them pray for you. You can be generic or specific. But James 5 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may pray for one another and may be healed. There's, there's health in this right here. This is the way you battle. So this is your time. If you've never trusted in Jesus and you need him in your life, you're realizing that today, we'd love to pray with you and begin you on that amazing, eternal, long journey with Jesus. So let me pray for you and we'll give you time to respond. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you first loved us and gave yourself as an atoning sacrifice for us. And God, I know you love deeply every single person in this room. Regardless of what we have done, regardless of what we haven't done, you love us. And you love us more than we can possibly imagine. Lord, there's never been in the history of your creation, there's never been a single person that's come to you in brokenness that you haven't forgiven. There's never been a single person coming to you crying out for help and salvation that you have denied. And God, that's not gonna change today. So Lord, I just pray that you would give us the humility and, and Lord, the sense of desperation to come to you and draw near to you as you draw near to us. So we lift up this time to you in Jesus' name, amen.